Beginning in verse number 1 of Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read down to verse 16. The Word of God says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor uh, foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for this time that you've allowed us to be together. I pray, Lord, that you'd give not just clarity and conciseness to my thoughts and words, although certainly, Lord, I do beg for that. But God, I beg that you give power and unction, that you do in hearts what only you, through the administration of the Word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are able to do in our hearts, minds, and lives. And help us, Father, to be surrendered to your working and leading. We'll be sure to give you the praise for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the book of Ephesians says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and I'm sure you'll be very familiar with these passages of Scripture. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I might say to you tonight that if you can rejoice by being saved by God's grace, and let me say I can rejoice in that tonight. I'm saved by God's grace. I've not been saved by my good works or my baptism or my church affiliation or the broken promises that I've made God. And I've made Him plenty of broken promises. But I'm not saved by any of those. I'm saved by the grace of God. What that means is that I am saved by leaning wholly on the finished work of Christ on Calvary. But listen, if we're going to say we're saved by the grace of God, and I think we ought to be able to say proudly, uh, not proud of ourselves, but proud of the Lord, and I believe we ought to be able to say without shame that we are saved by the grace of God, then we cannot pause and leave it there. We must go on to the natural conclusion, which is this, that if God saved me, He must have saved me for a reason. He saved me that I should walk, the Bible says, in good works. Walk in them. Now, my good works do not save me or make me more saved or secure my salvation. All that's accomplished by Christ on Calvary. But they are the natural progression of my behavior. In other words, I ought not live for myself because I can't lose my salvation. Hey, I ought to live for Him that saved me because I can, cannot lose my salvation. I ought to walk in these good works. 
And so it's not surprising that the book of Ephesians would occupy itself with our walk. And you probably noticed in the verses we read, but I'll remind you of them again. In verse number 2, the Bible says that we are to walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. Verse number 8 tells us that we uh, used to be darkness. We were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then down in uh, verse number 15, the Bible says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. I want you to think about three things pertaining to our walk. Let me say, number one, that as believers saved by God's grace, we ought to walk in love. Walk in love. Verse number 2, I'll read it in its entirety, tells us, And walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. The pattern of our love is mentioned here. Let me say that if there's anybody in the world that ought to treat people with love, it ought to be God's children. If there's anybody in the world that ought to be able to treat people with kindness, it ought to be the people that God has redeemed unto Himself. If there's anybody in the world that can be gentle, it ought to be people whom a wrathful God has by the blood of His own Son treated in a gentle manner. We have every reason to be kind and loving one to another. But let us remember that love does not just deal with the idea of kindness and gentleness and politeness. It deals with a self-sacrificial commitment to see to the well-being of another individual. The Bible says if we want to know how to love, we ought to walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. If we're looking for a pattern of what love is, we can find it in the Savior. We can find it in that He condescended Himself down to where we were at so that He might redeem us. We talked a little bit about that this morning when we preached on how He reached down His hand for us. But has it ever dawned on you that you and I are called in the same manner to be willing not to sully ourselves in sin, but rather to abase our pride in such a way that we'd be able to minister even unto the least of these? Listen, God ain't called nobody to live in sin, but God has called every one of us to share the gospel with sinners. And God has commanded us that we're not to be lofty and high-minded. We're not to think ourselves above that which we ought to, but we ought to have this same mind that was in Christ Jesus, that though He were God, and though He were equal with God, uh, and though uh, it was He did not find it to be unseemly or improper or ungodly to be equal with God, He didn't esteem Himself that way. Uh, but he became lowly, took upon him the form of man, uh, and took upon him the nature of man. The Bible says he became obedient even unto the death of the cross. We ought to be willing to condescend for other folks. We ought to be willing to uh, do without, if that's what it takes to see others do with. Now, that's a hard truth, especially in this dog-eat-dog, you-look-out-for-you-and-I'll-look-out-for-me world that we live in today. But when was the last time we thought about somebody before we thought about ourselves. When was the last time we were willing to do without so that another might do with? The Lord Jesus certainly is the supreme example of this. He lived His life. The Bible says that as He sat in the heavens, uh, that He was... I mean, you understand, the throne that He was a part of in heaven was the throne of the Ancient of Days, the glorious city of God, a place of splendor and treasures and glory and beauty. The Bible says, though He was rich, yet became He poor for our sakes, that you and I, through His poverty, might be made rich. And Paul says that's the grace of God. If we want to talk about what grace is, grace is the fact that God was rich and He became poor so that you and I could become rich. 
And we're not talking about physical temporal wealth, but we're talking about the wealth of God's righteousness and the wealth of God's blessing. And that He forewent all of that. He allowed us to take it upon ourselves so that He might take our sin upon Him. It is a sacrificial love, no doubt. But it's a persistent love. And let me say, not only do we see the pattern of our love, but I want you to notice the passion that our love ought to have, or we might use the word persistence. The Bible says, as Christ also hath loved us, are we loving people the way Jesus loved people? I want to get away from this, but I don't feel liberty to. Are we loving people the way Jesus loved people? It's so easy to get in this thing of being combative. We all do it. I do it. You do it. Everybody does it. This thing where when somebody says something that offends us, we puff up and we want to, we want to jump back at them. We want to take out that, that silver tongue. Maybe it's fork it. I don't know. And start stabbing at them with it. We're all guilty of it. What did Jesus do? He was led as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shears is done. So he opened not his mouth. Listen, he, he, he didn't answer back and he had all the answers. Listen, your words and my words can't settle nothing, but his words created the universe. But he didn't answer back. Why? Because he had an appointment with the cross of Calvary. The very fact that he allowed himself to be led away as a sheep to the slaughter, allowed himself to be led away without saying a word, was an expression of his love that he had to the very people that were leading him away. I'm just saying we ought, to, we ought to look to Jesus for that supreme example of love. Listen, that's true in the home. That's true in the church. That's true uh, in the workplace. That's true amongst our extended family. We can find in Jesus the perfect example of what love truly was. Then notice the passion of it. The Bible says this. We ought to walk in love as Christ also uh, hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering. For us an offering. Of course, when we think about Christ's passion, we think about the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, we often think of it in large theological terms. And I think that's appropriate. No bigger event ever happened in human history, nor will ever happen, than the cross of Calvary. But I think when we boil down what Jesus did on Calvary, what we'll see is this. He made Himself a curse so that we wouldn't have to be cursed. He took the punishment so that I wouldn't have to take the punishment. He placed Himself between me and the wrath of God. You've heard the uh, story, no doubt, many times about the uh, the children on the schoolyard. And I, you know, you know how these stories are. They get passed around. You don't even know really where they come from. But uh, two young boys that had been fighting and quarreling on the schoolyard. One was much bigger, and uh, he he was, you know, sort of the the, the big dog on the playground, so to speak. And uh, they had gotten into a fight, and the smaller fella was the one that had got caught. You know, that's always how it works. You know, you and somebody else getting into it, and and they get away, and you get caught. And uh, this was back in the days when they would take and, and lash a child if they had done this in school, back in the days of schoolhouses, you know, back when we didn't have all the murder and robbing and things like that. But uh, that's neither here nor there. But when, when they would do that, and the teacher got ready to lay the punishment upon this young boy, and that big fella, the big, I mean, biggest kid in class, the one that had been quarreling, he stepped up and he said, won't you let me take his place? And the story is told of how that he bent his back over and how that they began to whip and to beat that child. And he bore all the punishment of himself and of that little boy. He placed himself between just punishment and the guilty offender. You know, that's what Jesus did for you and I. Uh, We were at aught with God. We deserved wrath. 
We deserved judgment. We deserved punishment. But Jesus stood up and said, I'll take their punishment. I'll stand in their place. If I must suffer ill for them to do better, that's what I'll do. How often is it that when we're walking through this world and and living in this life, how often is it that we say things like this, well, I'm not going to let them do that to me. That's not fair. Listen, I'm not saying anybody ought to make themselves a doormat. But I am saying this, that there's virtue in sacrificial love. There's virtue in being willing to say, doesn't matter what's fair, if it can show and convey love towards them, then I'm willing to take their part. I'm willing to do without. I'm willing to suffer if that's what it takes. The Bible says he made himself an offering. An offering. Then I want you to notice the third thought. Notice the purpose of this walk. The Bible says not only did he make himself an offering for us, but he made himself a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. Part of the reason that Christ, and there's much that could be said about, that language is very vivid, very descriptive. If you go back and study the five sacrifices, basic sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament, there were two types. There was a sin offering and there was a sweet savor offering. And the sin offering was something if a person had transgressed God that they had to give to atone for their sin. But a a sweet savor offering was something that was given not when a person had done something wrong, but when a person simply wanted a rightness and fellowship with God, when they just wanted to approach as a worshiper unto God. And it didn't carry with it the idea of being a sin bearer, but rather being a worshiper coming into the presence of God. You know what that tells me? That Jesus was the whole package when it came to us getting to God. He was an offering and a sweet-smelling savor. But it reminds me of this, that love, biblical love, seeks to make a person right with God. Biblical love seeks to make a person right with God. This is the reason that biblical love seeks a resolution and not revenge. This is the reason that that biblical love makes us an intercessor instead of a defender. Biblical love will make us take the lesser position, if that's what it takes to exalt a person to a closer walk with God. And I'm just saying this, if we're going to walk in love as Jesus did, we're going to quit so much worrying about what's fair and start asking ourselves what will get people closer to God. What will get people closer to God. We need to walk in love is the first aspect. And then look down at verse number 7. The Bible says, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Now, Paul has just got through listing a bunch of things that are characteristics of folks that don't know God. In fact, he said, You know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things, the things he had just mentioned, says, Cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And he says, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Then he says in verse 8, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Listen, if we're going to walk for the Lord the way that He expects us to, we're going to be walking in love, but we're also going to be walking in light. Walking in light. God draws a distinct difference between who you were before you got saved and who you are now that you've been saved. If there's no difference between who you were before your profession, who you are now, I think it's a good bet that nothing happened at that moment of profession. God changes a person. Now, I I told you this morning, listen, I was a 10-year-old boy when I got saved. 
Uh, there wasn't a lot outward, visibly, that changed in my life when I got saved. But my entire world changed as far as the inward recesses of the heart and my relationship with God and having a relationship with Him. Now, listen, before I got saved, I didn't have a relationship with God. Because before a person gets saved, they don't have a relationship with God. They may imagine they do or believe they do or, or presume that they do, but before you come to Calvary, you don't have a relationship with God. Because if you've rejected the Son, you've rejected the Father. So you don't have a relationship with Him. But I'm saying this, that my life, although it may have not changed in a drastic way outwardly, it changed in a drastic way inwardly. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that outwardly there's going to be some grand change. I believe if you're walking in darkness, you're going to start walking in light. And I believe that that's, that's true not only of the outward, but of the inward reality. The Bible says, in light of this, you were sometimes darkness. Now you're light. Walk as children of light. Walk in the light that God has given you. What does the Bible mean when it talks about darkness and light? Well, when it talks about darkness, it's talking about those things that are in the realm of iniquity. Things that are uh, prompted uh, by the, the flesh. Things that are promoted by the world. Things that are pushed by the devil. Those things that are contrary to God. Because the Bible teaches us that God is light. And when the Bible speaks of light related to the believer, he's speaking about all those things that relate to the existence and reality and essence of who God is and what God loves and what pleases the Lord. Now I want you to notice three simple thoughts about walking in light. First off, if we're going to walk in light, we have to submit to the light. If you're saved, then you have the light of God in your life. This is true in two ways. Notice what it says in verses 9 and 10. Well, back up verse 8, we'll read it again. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. You remember we said a moment ago, I'm trying to get on and get preaching, but you remember we said a moment ago, if we're going to rejoice in being saved by God's grace, then we can't stop there. We've got to go on and walk the way that God wants us to walk. Uh, it, listen, it's illogical to spend all of our time rejoicing that we're saved in God's grace and never let that change our behavior and cause us to walk for the Lord. And this is what he's saying. You were sometimes darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. In, in light of that truth, in that reality, walk as children of light. And he gives you two things that are present light in the believer's life. He says, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Let me say, number one, that we have light of the Spirit of God in our lives if we've been saved. Now, I want you to listen carefully. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. That's what Romans chapter 8 says. If the Spirit of God does not indwell you, you don't belong to God. Right? That's true, right? If you are saved, the Spirit of God indwells you. And if He indwells you, He is present to guide you and to convict you, to stir you and to lead you in your life. And He will do so inasmuch as we allow Him to deal on our hearts. No believer in this day of grace is without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, every one of us that has been saved by God's grace... We have the Spirit of God within us leading us to walk aright with Him. That's the reason when you sin and do wrong, God lets you know about it. It's the Spirit of God letting you know about it. That's the reason when God is directing your steps, 
How many times, and somebody will testify to this, I'm sure, how many times have you been walking through life, maybe just walking through your bank or grocery store, walking through the Walmart or wherever it might be, God has stirred your heart to witness to someone or to give them a track. If you didn't do it, you couldn't get them off your mind. The Spirit of God wouldn't let you get them off your mind. And it troubled you and it grieved you uh, until all possibility of being able to witness to them was gone or until you went back in obedience, gave them a track, witnessed to them, whatever it might be. Listen, that ain't Jiminy Cricket dealing with you. That's the Spirit of God dealing with you if you're saved by God's grace. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Every one of us has the light of the Spirit of God to lead us in those three elements. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Goodness relates to how we treat one another. Righteousness relates to how we uh, interact with God. And truth relates to what we believe, what is the framework of our existence. So the Spirit of God is light in our lives. We ought to submit to Him. I'm going to make a statement. I hope you'll listen to it. If God deals with you and you don't obey, you're not walking in light. You're walking in darkness. You say, preacher, can a believer walk in darkness? Sure they can. They can walk in disobedience. But it's unnatural and it's miserable. It's not something that's going to make you happy. It's not something that's going to fulfill you. It's not something that's going to get the will of God done in your life. Sure you can walk in darkness. When the Spirit of God deals with you, that is revealed light. That is light that you are accountable for and I am accountable for. And if we choose to not obey Him or yield to Him, or if we choose to buck Him, we're saying, I don't want that light, I'll walk in darkness instead. There's a second truth here. It says in verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. I believe this deals with the idea of the light of Scriptures. How do we know what's acceptable to God? Well, we know what's acceptable to God because He has told us in His Word. Isn't it good to know we don't, God doesn't call on us to guess what is acceptable to Him. He's given us an entire Bible to know what's acceptable unto Him. And God has spoken through His Word. I want you to understand, every person in this room, saved by the grace of God, you are accountable for the reading and studying and believing of this Word. Every one of us. Say, preacher, there's things in there I don't understand. You're still accountable for the reading, the studying, the believing. I didn't say you were accountable for the understanding of it. Amen? But you are accountable for the reading, the studying, and the believing of every single word in this Bible. And the things that God has conveyed to you and shown to you in the truth of it, you are accountable and responsible for the obeying of it. Every, this is light. The Bible says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And inasmuch as we... And listen, we, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You understand, we've heard more sermons in our life than most people a hundred years ago heard ever in their whole life. You understand that we have more preaching at our fingertips today than we have ever had in human history. We have more books. We have more commentaries. We have more preaching. We have more devotional. And we have a lot more to be accountable for today than ever humanity has had in all of human history. Christ speaking to several towns and cities in Israel, He said, hey, one of these days it's going to be worse on Sodom and, or worse on you than it was on Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, if Sodom and Gomorrah have had the preaching that you've had, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He said, they didn't have the light that you've got, and you're going to be accountable for it. Listen, brethren, we're going to be accountable one day for this light that we've had. 
It's not all just a matter of, oh, boy, that was a good sermon, that was good preaching. Boy, I enjoyed that. Boy, that was interesting. I'd never seen that before. I'd never studied that. Every sermon you hear, you're going to give an account for how you responded to it. We've been given light. We ought to submit to the light. And then notice number two, we ought to separate from the darkness. Verse 11 and 12, the Bible says, "...and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret." Boy, we're seeing a lot of the world's secrets come to light today, aren't we? All over culture and society, it seems like every time you turn on the news, there's some new scandal of somebody's wicked and lewd activities. We live in a day where technology and social media has shined a light on all of men's deepest and darkest behaviors. But I've got news for you, and he goes on to say this. In fact, I'm going to read it. We'll get to it in a moment, but I want to read it. He says this, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Listen, there's a lot brighter light than social media that's going to shine on men's works one day. There's a lot brighter light than the CNN and the Fox News that's going to shine on man's works one day. And that's the light of God's searching eye and infallible Word. So what are you and I to do as a result of that? We ought to separate from that. We ought to separate from that. I don't mean this as a point of pride. I hope I don't. God knows my heart better than I do, but I I don't believe I mean this as a point of pride. But when I turn on the TV and they're talking about these latest folks in Hollywood and the latest singers and the latest this and the latest that, it does my soul good when I don't have a clue in the world who they're talking about. And most of the time I don't have a clue in the world who they're talking about. Man, I don't want no part of that. I don't want no part of that. Uh, they talk about, you know, Hollywood's rocking and reeling right now because some big executive, they found out that he harassed and assaulted like 200 women or something like that. Should that surprise anybody? You're, you're telling me the perverse things that come out of Hollywood, you're surprised Hollywood's full of perverts? Should that surprise us? Here's the problem is we have, as believers have played footsie for so long with the world's culture that now we are shell-shocked to find out that they don't uphold our values. Well, the truth is, you say, preacher, how different are they? As different as darkness is from light. We ought to separate from it. Separate from it. Hey, listen, it ain't going to hurt your kids to be different from this world. This world's on its way to hell. I want my kids to be different from this world. I, want them to, I don't want them to dress and look and behave and listen to and act like this world. This world is on its way to hell. This world is in misery. In fact, the Bible talks about things in the world and calls them the unfruitful works of darkness. They'll provide nothing good for us. Let's just separate from them. Just push away from them. Just push away from them. It's a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Let's just push away from it. Listen, we don't have to be savvy. We don't have to be people of the world. We don't have to be educated in the world's culture. It's a shame even to speak of those things. Listen, I'd, I'd rather be ignorant of the world and wise with God than wise of the world and ignorant of God. I ain't worried that I'm not up on all those things. I'm not interested in those things. It's a shame to even speak of them, so who cares about them anyway? I see in this passage we ought to separate from the darkness. Then look at verse 13 and 14. The Bible says, But all things that are reproved, are made manifest by the light. To reprove means to rebuke or to expose as, as wrong. It says, All things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, in light of that, 
The Bible says in verse 14, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. This is an exhortation to the light. Let me say that as believers, we ought to submit to the light and separate from the darkness, but we ought to seek the light in our lives. In other words, we ought to deliberately place ourselves under the light of the leading the Spirit of God and under the light of the truth of Scripture. We Listen, we ought not be afraid of the light. And that's so often how we approach it. I remember when I was working at a, a little uh, hardware store uh, over in Halls, uh, they had a bunch of little tasks that you would have to do. You'd have to, like, cut glass or cut keys or all this out or the other. And uh, one of the jobs that they had was to sharpen chainsaw chains. And I worked there for two or three years and managed in that entire time to never once get trained on that. And the reason is I knew if I got trained on it, they'd expect me to do it. Amen? So I thought, it's just better not even to learn it because that would just be more responsibility. Uh, now, if I ever need to sharpen a chainsaw blade, I'm helpless. Amen? But... You know, so oftentimes that's how we treat the truth of the Word of God. We shy away from it because to embrace it is to embrace more life that we're accountable for. If we would just get in the Word of God and study, we'd find out it's a lot better in the light than it is in the darkness. And we ought to seek for God's light. We ought to ask God to speak on our life. We ought to ask God to convict us and to deal with us. Listen, don't tremble when God's convicting you. Rejoice when God's convicting you. He ain't done with you. He's got a plan for you. He's, he's stirring you because He loves you. And He loves you too much to leave you in that condition. Don't shy away from it. Listen, one of the things we ought to praise God for is that He convicts us. I know it don't feel good to be convicted. It don't feel no better for me for God to step all over my sins and step all over my heart any more than it does you. I don't enjoy it, but it means God loves me. He doesn't want me to stay in that condition. We ought to seek that light. We do so by following the leading of the Spirit of God and by reading the Word of God, by placing ourselves under the preaching of the Word of God and by being a good steward and studier of the Word of God. I want to give you one final thing and I'm done. Look down at verse 15. The Bible says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. I think we ought to walk in love and we ought to walk in light, but evidently we ought to walk in line in the way that we live and behave. The Bible says we ought to walk circumspectly. Uh, the word circumspectly, I'm going to blow your mind. You ready? I'm going to shiver your timbers. The word circumspectly, it comes from two words, circular or circumference, and spectator. What it means literally is to look around you, to observe around you. And I would say, number one, we need to walk diligently in our lives. God expects us to walk circumspectly, meaning to walk with our... Can we put it this way? I've been watching a lot of football lately, and uh, I ain't watched the NFL. But let me tell you something, though. I never watched the NFL, right? I've been left out in the rain. I ain't been able to be outraged and protested because I never watched it in the first place, right? So uh, that's all right. We okay? I don't know if you're upset because you love them or if you're upset because you hate them or if you're upset just because there's donuts waiting and I'm still preaching. All right, but don't bow up on me. I'm just saying, I ain't been able to protest. I never watched the NFL in the first place. But I, I do watch college football. And I'm watching this young quarterback, Garantano, that we have. I, I like him. I, I just hate he's got to play for Butch Jones, amen. But but I, I like him. Really, I do. Uh, he's got talent. And he, he's a scrambler and stuff. And he seems to have pretty good instincts. And, uh, you know, he, he's learned not to throw the ball to people of the opposite color jersey like Dormady did. So I like him. But one of the things that I'm seeing about him is he's young and inexperienced. 
and he's not yet learned to play with his head on a swivel. If you watch any amount of football, you know what it means to play with your head on a swivel. Situational awareness. To be constantly looking around you and scanning to see where the threat may come from. And consequentially, it's actually it's kind of fun to watch him. I feel bad for the kid, but it's kind of fun. It's like Bristol. There's a lot of wrecks when he's playing. And, uh, you know, you'll see these linemen. Kentucky did it two or three times last night. Uh, would uh, Man, they'd open up a hole and that safety come around and boom, hit him right in the back because he wasn't looking around and watching where he was going. He should have been playing more circumspectly and looking around him and walking diligently. Now, here's the truth we need to understand in our lives. There are threats around us constantly. There are threats to your home. There are threats to your kids. There are threats to your grandkids. There are threats to your spouse. There are threats to your walk with God in the local church. Everywhere around us, the devil is walking about seeking whom he may devour. In light of that, we ought to be sober and vigilant. How oftentimes when we have a change in life do we ever ask this question, how might this affect my walk with God? How might this affect my walk with... How might this relationship affect my walk with God? How might, how might this career change affect my walk with God? Hey, how, how might this decision as far as a, a house or a vehicle or whatever it might be, how might this affect my relationship with God? We're called to live life with our head on a swivel. Not in paranoia, but in vigilance. Looking about, never giving the devil an inch. Because you and I both know if you give him an inch, he'll take the whole ruler. He'll take everything. And if we let him get his foot in the door, that's all it takes. So we need to be vigilant, constantly looking around. We ought to do it with our kids. I, I try to do it with my little boy. He's just little, but he's getting to the age. He sees things. He notices things. He repeats things. So you've got to watch what you say. Somebody say amen to that. You know, but... He's like a sponge just soaking up the information and world around him. And me and his mom were having to learn to be a little more vigilant about what he sees and what he experiences, what he takes in through the eye gate and the ear gate and what he puts out through the mouth gate. Amen. That's a big gate for him. We've got to be cautious. We've got to keep it because that's the wicked world we live in. And sticking our head in the sand and pretending it's not the case won't change anything. We, listen, we got little footsteps following behind in ours. we got family members following behind in ours. we got co-workers and neighbors and people that are looking to us. We better walk circumspectly because the devil's walking that way. He's walking about. He's got his head on a swivel. Do you have yours on a swivel? He's looking around for an opening. Are you looking around for an opening that you can stop, a breach that you can repair? I see that we ought to walk diligently. Let me say number two, we ought to walk wisely. The Bible says in the next phrase, verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, wisdom is knowledge rightfully applied. Wisdom can only exist in the life of the believer through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because the truth of the matter is this, we don't know how to apply knowledge correctly. In fact, knowledge for the carnal man puffeth up. It doesn't, it doesn't apply correctly. The only way that Solomon had wisdom was because God blessed him with it. Solomon was the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth. And listen, even he got himself in a mess. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. He went down a few dead-end roads. The only reason he was able to ever have the wisdom he had, wisdom, knowledge, rightly applied in the fear of God, 
The only reason is because God had blessed him with it. You or I, we may have all the knowledge in the world. I was talking to somebody the other day. They were talking about when they were raising their teenager. And they said they went through that I know phase. It's amazing when a, when a young person... I'm not picking on our young people, but, but uh, because I really don't know that that's the case with most of our young people. But for a lot of young people, it is the case, and it sure was for me. You get about 14, 15 years old, and your IQ shoots up to like 7,000, and you know everything. You can't be told nothing because you know. I know. I know. I know. I know. When little man gets up that age, I'm going to get some really difficult math problems. And every once in a while, he's on one of them things saying, I know, I know, I'm going to throw it in there. Oh, really? You do know the square root of 487,000. We say, I know, I know. Listen, absorbing knowledge is not the same thing as rightfully applying it in wisdom. We have all the knowledge in the world, but only through the leading of the Spirit of God can we apply that wisdom rightly. I don't like to open up my prayer closet because I do believe the prayer closet ought to be a secret thing. But I will share with you one thing that me and my wife ask God for every night. We ask God to give us wisdom and unction to parent. Because I believe we need both. I believe we need wisdom. But then I believe we need power. Uh, I've seen so many young people raised in the right home, raised in the right context, raised with the right stuff, still wind up messed up. I'm not pretending I know any secret, but I do know one secret. If I can if I can plead with God on the behalf of my young person, that's the best chance that he's got and I've got both. So we ask God to give us wisdom because we can't just get wisdom. We have, we have to be given wisdom. Uh, the Bible says, If any among you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. There is an earthly wisdom that's sensual, but then there's a heavenly wisdom that's, that is from above, that's righteous and pure. And that's the kind of wisdom I need if I'm going to raise him right. That's the kind of wisdom we need if we're going to stay married and love each other and have the home that God would be glorified in. I need that wisdom. Hey, listen, don't, don't bow up and don't start wondering what's going on. You need that wisdom too. Ain't nothing going on with me that ain't going on with you. The reality is I need it and you need it too. We need that wisdom. Then we need unction. We need the Holy Ghost to take control and to lead us and guide us because we can't do it on our own. We need to walk wisely, not as fools, but wisely. And then finally, and I'm done, we need to walk urgently. The Bible says, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. When we talk about redeeming something, we often talk about it in terms of purchasing We think of it in terms of Calvary, and we think of it in terms of us being bought with a price. But you understand that what redeeming means means to take possession of something. Now, I've given you this illustration before. If you were to call into a radio station, or if you were to be a part of some type of raffle, and you were to win a prize, they would call you and they would tell you, Now, sir, this has your name on it, but you have to come down here and redeem it. It already belongs to you, but you have to take it by your hands and take possession of it. The Bible says we ought to redeem the time because the days are evil. Listen, the devil has his share of this world's time and activity. What time are we taking to live for God? You've heard me say this before, that you're not, you can't find time. You have to take time and make time if you're going to do anything for God. When we say, I'm going to try to find the time, that implies within it that there's some portion of the day that we've never discovered. 
But I don't know about you, but far too often I've felt every single second of a 24-hour day. I wish I could find some extra time. It'd be nice to have three or four extra hours, but it's delusional, right? Because we all have the same 24 hours in the day. Every one of us. Doesn't matter where we're at on the planet. Doesn't matter what our social class or racial uh, uh, background or, or our ethnicity. It doesn't matter what our political affiliation. We all have the same 24 hours. The question is, what are we doing with them? So don't say you'll find time because you won't find it. Because there's none that's hidden. You have to take time. Make time. And, and let me say this. I'm going to rebuke myself. Is that all right? Somebody said, I wish you would, preacher, because no one else will. Let me say this. It's folly to say we're going to make time, too. <laughs> That's right. We can only spend it. We can't make time because we've never made time at all. God's the one that made time. So stop and think about it. If we can't find it, because there's none hidden, and so it's not magically going to appear, and we can't make it, which means what? If we can't make it, if we're going to take time, that means we're going to have to take it from something else and apply it to this. Here's the truth of the matter. Nothing ever was done for God with spare change or spare time. If we're going to do something for God, we're going to have to take time, which means there might be some other things we've been spending time on that we're going to have to do without. We're going to have to prioritize in our life. You say, preacher, I don't know if I have the time. Yep, you have the same time I have. The question is whether you have the will to take the time or not. And you better do it. You know why? Because the days are evil. Ain't nobody serving God by accident in these days. The only folks serving God is the ones that are doing it on purpose. Society ain't going to stumble into revival. A home ain't going to just trip into being godly. The days are evil. And if time is going to be given to God, it must first be taken from something else. I'm just saying we're going to have to start being assertive and proactive. We're going to have to quit making excuses if we want to walk in line. We're going to have to, and so often, listen, if there's anything, if there's anything that we're all guilty of, it is the communal therapy of excuse making. The communal therapy of excuse making. I'll make an excuse and you validate it, and you make an excuse and I'll validate it, and we'll all feel better. we got to quit playing that. we got to quit sitting in that powwow circle. And we got to start saying, listen, I ain't going to take nothing except a change and the reality and effectiveness. I'm not going to take an excuse because an excuse don't change things. I, I'm not going to anesthetize myself with all my reasons. I'm just going to make my mind up that I'm going to serve God. Because the days are evil. You don't have much time left. Jesus is coming soon. You better get busy now. He could come back at any moment. And then think about all that time that you never took, that you're going to have to give an account for every millisecond of. I believe I'd redeem the time. There's enough of my life that I've wasted. I don't want to waste no more. I want to redeem the time because the days are evil. Because one day, you and I, we're going to give an account for our lives and how we spend our time.